So today's just going to be my inner monologue. Um, it's great to see everybody. Uh, <laughs> great to see everybody. Thank you for welcoming uh, me to your church. Thanks, Hannah. Um, you know, she mentioned I'm married to Megan, who's the worship director over at Bethany Eastside, and uh, of course, friends with Taylor, and hopefully soon all of you fine folks. So uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the welcome. Um, let me just pray for us real quick, then I'll begin. Father, um, you are here, as we just sang. You're here in this room. We don't have to say some special words or feel special feelings for that to be true. And so, as we're here, as we listen to your story, Jesus, um, I ask that you'd speak to us and, and impact our lives, every single one of us. Um, For uh, in uh, a few years ago, I, I, I was previously a, uh, uh, getting my master's degree in, in Israel, uh, and I was doing missions work over uh, in Palestine. That's where I lived, was actually in uh, the Palestinian West Bank for a couple of years. And I remember when I, when I first, shortly after I moved there, um, it was maybe about three months in, um, you know, through a very divine connection, I'd been uh, connected with a, a local guy named Khaled. And uh, Khaled was a very interesting individual, an enthusiastic host, a very friendly guy, and, um, and didn't speak a lick of English. And goodness if I didn't speak a lick of Arabic at the time. So it was, we had an interesting friendship, mostly through translators, but then we would just hang out all the time, you know, trying to Google Translate our way through a relationship, right? And so about three months in, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning Arabic, I'm doing all these things, and Khaled's like, hey, there's a really high up guy, um, uh, you know, a big, big, important guy who's throwing a wedding, and I want you to come. And I was like, okay, let's go to a wedding. You know, this is why I'm here. I'm here to meet people and share the good news of Jesus with, uh, with everybody here in Palestine. So let's do it. Um, so, you know, I get all gussied up, dressed to the nines as much as I can. And, uh, and I go to this wedding, um, and it was, it was separated, as, as many conservative Muslim, uh, Muslim weddings are, with uh, the women having, you know, their own entirely women-only section and the men having a men's-only section. And uh, while I was over, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm new to the country, I'm totally different, I'm a minority over there, I don't speak the language, I'm, I'm feeling a little apprehensive and a little bit excited at the same time, like, man, this is why I came to meet all these people. And so we get there, the party's going, people are dancing, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of dudes dancing together, which was fun, and I, I totally got into after a while, that was a little wall that came down for me, because they segregate the sexes. Um... But so Khaled, Khaled, you know, brings me over. He's like, I've got somebody that I want you to meet. And I was like, okay. And so we start walking. And I'm like, yeah, I'm getting to meet people. Go maybe share Jesus with these guys. And then, uh, and then we get to this table that's, that's kind of elevated above the rest of the crowd. And sitting at this table are like five or six guys who look very different than the rest of the wedding. So, you know, most, you know, call it maybe 50, 60 people in attendance where I'm at are dressed in, in normal Western fashion styles, right? Guys wearing jeans, boots, collared shirt, looking good. And then these guys are all in traditional Arab dress. So headgear, beard, you know, down to the belly button, full gown going and sandals. You know, it, it was a very like Osama bin Laden look to me, you know, at the time. And so I was immediately like, what is this? <laughs> you know, what, who are these guys? What is this about? Why are they different? Um, and I started getting a little apprehensive because, again, I don't speak the language. I don't know these people. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and Khaled tells me, 
This guy is the military leader of Hamas in the West Bank, not, not in Gaza. Gaza is their main headquarter. But this guy's the military commander of Hamas in the West Bank. And so my, my apprehension goes to straight fear and anxiety at this point, right? Because, you know, Hamas in my head, I'm thinking like terrorists, you know, whatever, all the stuff that we see on the news, planes flying into buildings, even though it wasn't Hamas, but you know what I'm saying. This is what was on my mind. And so we walk up to meet this guy, and, uh, and Khaled, you know, again, in, in as much Arabic as I could understand, he's like, hey, this is my friend George. He's a Christian, and he's an American. <laughs> and that was it. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Am I like the main event at this wedding? And I didn't know. Because, you know, again, I didn't even know Khaled that well at this point. It's funny to think about now. But I, I didn't know Khaled that well at this point either. And so I'm like, is this, is this going to be a video that ends up on YouTube with, with me not having a happy ending, Right. And, and so I walk up to this guy, just very apprehensive, very concerned about, you know, how I'm going to be received. What is this? Khaled, you know, basically lays out, this is your ideological enemy, this white American Christian, okay? Um, and, and he stands up. He stands up when I walk up. Uh, you know, Khaled gives him the intro. He stands up, and he looks at me, and he takes my hand. And in English, in, in, in as much English as he could muster, he was like, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here in my country. And if there's anything that I can do to help you while you're in my country, please reach out to me personally. He said this to me. And it was, it blew me away. It was the opposite of what I expected, right? This guy just reaches up and he says, even though you're my ideological enemy, which he would make no apologies for, right? But because you're here right now, welcome, welcome. If there's anything that I can do for you, it was powerful. As someone for me, in Palestine, who was a minority, who didn't speak the language, who was an enemy of the majority of the people at this wedding, um, to be on the receiving end of a welcome from this guy was truly powerful. And the comfort that I felt in that moment was remarkable. I was put at ease. My fears were removed. And I was happy to be there. And our text this morning deals with a similar story um, and a similar atmosphere surrounding a great feast, hospitality, extending a welcome, an invitation and uh, as we work through this passage and attempt to properly interpret it, um, we'll focus on how this story would have been received in the time of Jesus, and then we'll translate that to our reality here, right? This is the basics of hermeneutics for you Bible students out there. Um, you know, as we try to draw wisdom and guidance from this text that, is, that comes 21 centuries later after Jesus walked the earth. So let's dive, dive in. Um, and you can turn in your Bibles or pull out your phones to Luke 14, 15 through 23 is our passage. Luke 14, 15 through 23. When one of those at the table with him heard this, him being Jesus, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat and feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, Okay. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, Well, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. 
servant goes and does it, comes back. Sir, verse 22, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told a servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So that my house will be full. Verse 15 again, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat and feast in the kingdom of God. So our story comes off the heels, when one of them had heard this, comes off the heels of another dinner-themed text where Jesus implores his followers, the previous passage, when they throw a party, invite the needy, invite societal outcasts to the celebration, then in the form of the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And a guy sitting there listening to Jesus is eating it up, right? And he just bursts out with enthusiasm. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And now this guy you know, who, who we might call man one in the story if it was like a film, right? The credit's rolling. He's not named. He's not that significant. Um, but this guy taking Jesus's instructions about, hey, when you throw a party to, oh, wow, the big party in heaven, the messianic feast, we might call it, was a natural train of thought to follow. As early as the prophet Isaiah, 70, 750 years prior to this story that we're reading right now, God's kingdom is in fact described as a great feast, or banquet. Isaiah 25 reads, On this mountain, that is Zion, Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever the insults and mockery against his land and people the Lord has spoken. And so for a long time, centuries even before Jesus, the kingdom of God is envisioned and prophesied as fellowship around a great feast. And it's a major recurring image of the spiritual reality of life forever with God. It's a big feast, fellowship at a table. And I absolutely love this image. I love this image. And so this random unnamed dude is picking up what Jesus is putting down and ties it to the kingdom of God illustrated as a lavish feast. And Jesus, in response, you know, we might think he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, A plus or like check, you know, you said the right thing, right? That's what so many people want from Jesus. You said the right thing. And Jesus is like, okay, my guy, let's talk about the feast that is the kingdom of God. Let's talk about the feast that is the kingdom of God. And so he tells the parable that we just read to answer impart the question, what is the nature of the kingdom of God? What is the nature of the kingdom of God? And this is the question that we'll be considering as we read through it. Verse 16 again. So Jesus replied to him, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So the opening scene of the parable is set with preparations for a feast. Throwing a feast or a big party, as many of you know, can be an involved process. And back 20 centuries ago, you needed even more preparation than you do today. Why? You couldn't just go to Fred Meyer and grab what you needed the day before, last minute, as I may or may not have done Friday for a songwriters event that we hosted. Taylor knows she was there. She saw the sweat dripping down my face as I'm like, I think we're done. Um... You know, it's an involved event, and back then even more so. Animals had to be killed, cleaned, prepared, and cooked. 
wine purchased, dinnerware prepared, balloons chosen, well, not the balloons, but it was an ordeal. And so like today, invitations back then were RSVP. Believe it or not, they were RSVP. So when Jesus says the man invited many guests, these people would have all received the invitation and said, yes, I'm coming. And per the custom of the time, most of these guests that would have been invited, you know, from Jesus' listener's perspective, this is the perspective we're adopting, this guy who's throwing the feast would have invited his peers or near peers, people of roughly similar stature and wealth and privilege in the community. That, that was the normal thing to do, right? So he sends out these invites. He's invited many guests. They've responded yes. And now moving on to verse 17, the big day has arrived. Preparations have been made, and it's time to party. So the master sends out his servant to round everyone up and let them know, hey, table's set, food's cooked, wine's open, and the gala is on. But then we read in verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. It just happened. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So immediately after, we see all the original invitees, the privileged peers, we'll call them, begin to make last-minute excuses to the host in the story. And let's break them down. Guy number one, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, in Jesus' time, like today, people examined the land that they were going to purchase prior to completing the purchase. Even if you've bought it through an agent, even if there's other people involved, you know, before the transaction happens, you go and investigate it. We even have copies of papyri from near Jesus' time, a 2,000-year-old contract stipulating just that, showing a buyer who inspected the land, said everything was as the seller said, and boom, it's done. You know, for you real estate brokers, we did the final walkthrough, right? And everything is as you said. But all this is to say that, like the excuses that we're going to see, this late-notice excuse in the parable would have been heard as very weak, you know. It would, have been, it would have been heard as a very weak excuse. Why? Because surely you inspected this before buying your property, right? Surely you inspected this before dropping a load of cash. This guy is pitched in the story by Jesus is just grasping at whatever he can to avoid attending. But more than that, more than just not wanting to go, it would have served as a huge insult to the dignity of the host who had prepared the feast at great personal expense to himself. Great personal expense to himself. Guy number two is not much different. I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And his, week is and his excuse is just as weak as the first for a few reasons. One, again, no one would buy these animals without inspecting them. So I'm saying, oh, I just bought these, and I've got to go look at them. Just comes off as like, what? What are you talking about? But even so, even beyond that, the fact that this guy just bought five yoke of oxen meant that in his time, he was loaded. He was absolutely loaded with money. He had a ton of property under his ownership. Most farmers would need one yoke of oxen to plow their, their property in a year. And this guy owns so much property, he needs five. Or, you know, we could take from the story five more than he already has, right? So this guy owns so much, he needs five more oxen than he, five more yoke, so ten oxen, five pairs, uh, to, to manage the massive estate that he has. And from that fact alone, from that fact alone, 
it is inconceivable that he didn't have many people under his employ as a wealthy landowner. And so the point is, he could have easily sent any number of his employees to go check out the oxen, but instead he just panders an excuse to the host the day of. Sorry, can't make it. You know, I'm just, as I happen to be checking these out, this is a really unfortunate circumstance, you know, whatever. So we move on to response number three, invitee number three, who is even more terse with his response. I just got married, so I can't come. Full stop. And with our third and final last-minute cancellation, we see a clear pattern in the parable that the rudeness has escalated in the story. The first guy objected, I must go. I must go and take care of this, but asked to be excused. The second guy says, well, this is what I'm doing. I am going, right? If we were to translate it a different way, I am going to do this so I can't come, but also asked to be excused. And then the third guy doesn't even ask to be excused. He's not even apologetic. I just got married, so I can't come, full stop. And while being freshly married was a legitimate excuse to not serve in the army for a year back then, it's stipulated in the law for procreative purposes, no doubt, you know, building the next generation and all that, it was in no way a valid excuse for skipping a feast that he'd explicitly said, hey, I'm going to this. Again, the whole point being, the whole point being, this was a huge slap in the face to the host who had spent a ton of money and time to make this event happen. So remembering that this parable is not just a story in and of itself, but is designed to be an illustration that helps answer the question, what is the nature of the kingdom of God? Let's take stock for a minute before we move on. Jesus portrays our welcome to the kingdom of God in this story as an invitation to a lavish feast and unbridled fellowship with God. God sends a herald with the message, hey, it's time, come, dine with me, celebrate with me, be with me. And the response to this invitation by God himself, again, interpreting the parable, by God himself, are, they are universally, meh, don't need it. Oh, I have this and that to take care of. I have such and such obligation. You know, maybe later. This is the tone of their rejections. Again, very weak, very weak. This is how Jesus' audience would have heard this. And to paraphrase and interpret the text a little more, to turn up the contrast in the story a little bit, Jesus is saying, God himself invited you to participate in the rich blessedness that takes place under his awning, under his rule, in his kingdom, and you were too busy to care. You were too preoccupied to see the significance of what you're missing. Passing on the joy, the meaning, the significance, the eternal party to end all parties. Again, this guy's quote, you know, this guy's quoting from Isaiah, the great heavenly feast that's the kingdom of God. You're passing on that because of some oxen, because of your business, in your pursuit to acquire more property to work, because you're focusing on your personal life, because you don't feel up to it, despite the fact that you said you'd be there. This is the subtext of the story. The excuses don't live up to the level of the missed feast. Not even close. It's like saying, well, you know, I missed, missed the birth of my child because I wanted to put some decals on my car. Like, what? It's apples and oranges. And Jesus says, here's literally God, and they give excuses that amount to, I don't really see enough value in this to continue. That's what it boils down to. I don't see enough value in this to continue. And I'm not framing it this way, because if I was in the audience right now, I might be thinking this. I'm not framing it this way to shame us all in the room, to like, 
do more or go to church more often or whatever. You know, that's, that's not where I'm going with this, just to, just to kind of ease that tension if that's what you're thinking. But rather, again, I want to highlight what's happening and turn up the contrast in the story in anticipation of next. These guys are, I don't see enough value in this to continue, despite my earlier commitment. And so the servant, hearing these very lame excuses, comes back to the master with the news. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. Other translations say furious, and it fits the word. And ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So in response to an absolutely weak show of excuses to avoid attending by the original guests, the master makes an interesting choice. We're not postponing. We're not rescheduling. Instead, we'll invite new guests. And the list of guests to this expensive, extravagant, honored feast is unexpected. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. For reference, the term for crippled here refers to those who have been maimed or mutilated. So think a war veteran missing a leg, not necessarily a congenital defect. But what's this about? If this group sounds familiar... It's because it's the groups of people that Jesus' ministry, as well as God's ministry in the Old Testament, often focuses on, especially in Luke's gospel. Um, The same list is in the immediately preceding text. But here's what's interesting about this. here's Here's the so what. In Jesus' day, poor people rarely entered the walled, well to do part of a city where someone like our host in the story would live a man of affluence, a man of status, right? And moreover, bringing beggars from off the street was absolutely unheard of. The point being, the host's behavior in the parable would unequivocally not be socially acceptable or respectable to his own social class. The host in the story has shifted from being a dude who was slighted by his, by his peers to, uh, to, to, being a, to being a complete rebel in a sense, a societal rebel, and beyond social and class expectations, which very much govern how Jesus' audience would have heard this, the host's actions are counterculture to the prevailing religious sentiment of Jesus' time as well. Even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, a very significant religious text from from Jesus' time, the maimed and blind are excluded from the messianic feast in what they're writing. This is what they believed at the time. And so even amongst religious elites, this view was the norm. You're inviting who? The crippled? the lame, the blind. But our slighted host says, go, find the disabled, pick up the homeless off the street, bring the soldiers with PTSD scraping by in housing projects. I want them at my great feast. So the servant runs out, starts bringing in all these folks, and the story concludes in verse 22 and 23. Sir, the servant said, so he goes, he goes, he does this thing, He, he comes back, sir, What you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. If the crowd from the first invitation wasn't countercultural enough, the invitation keeps extending further. Jesus goes further now where he said before, bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. He says, bring them in. Now he says, compel them 
compel them to come in. Other translations say, press upon them, urge them, even force them. It fits the meaning of the underlying Greek word, force them to come. But why would he use such strong language here? Because it was so societally abnormal to invite this group of people to such a well-to-do event that they would have felt <clears throat> that they would have felt entirely unworthy to attend. They would have felt entirely unworthy to attend and would have refused. And I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Imagine getting an invite from some random dude tomorrow who just runs up saying he's got a no-strings-attached ticket to you for the Met Gala with the most exclusive, richest A-listers there are in the U.S., you know, probably the world. You'd be like, I don't believe you. <laughs> you know, this is a, this is a scam. There, there's no way this is actually true. Why? Because random invites to the Met Gala don't happen. It's not normal. Compel them, the master said, because these people on the fringe wouldn't believe it either. Wouldn't have clothes for the occasion, aren't the right fit, don't deserve it, period. They would say no out of shame because of their status in society. And so now with the parable complete, you know, it's not a super long one, with the parable told, we're seeing two prevailing responses to the host's invitation, to the invitation to God's kingdom. Again, spiritual realities behind this story. On the one hand, nah, don't need it. Too busy, whatever. On the other hand, I'm not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. Not an ounce of me. And I think that's the gospel in this story. You know, James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, the outcasts, those deemed unworthy of status, regard, effort, or fellowship by society. Jesus says, compel them, convince them to come in. And, you know, I, I love how in this story it would have been enough. It would have been enough to stop it, get the crippled, the lame, the blind, right, in the previous verses. It makes a clear and specific point. Like, all are welcome, even, even the outcasts. But Jesus continues in the story, right? He drives the point home. He continues the kingdom illustration by saying the invitation keeps going. Fill the house. Bring them in. Bring them all in. Everyone is welcome at my feast. Again, in answer to the question, what is the nature of the kingdom of God? It's an invitation that keeps going and extends beyond the privileged, beyond the societally normal, beyond the religiously normal, beyond the Christianly normal in today's terms, beyond the accepted to the outcasts, and then further. Why? In the text. So that my house will be full, says God. Of all the opinions that people might have, the decliners looking down on this event, the poor feeling unworthy of it, those outside the town astonished that they would be invited to it, of all these opinions about the master's, the master's opinion was final. Out of all these opinions, the master's opinion was final. It's my house. It's my party. It's my feast. I invite who I wish to invite. And who is invited? Everyone. Everyone. And that, too, is the gospel in this story, that no matter your position, your history, your failure or success, your status in your circles at work with friends or family, regardless of all considerations that for now in this century are normal in our American mindset, in our society, regardless of all of them, you are invited and gladly welcomed to God's family and at his dinner table. You are gladly welcomed to God's family and at his dinner table. And some of you may be thinking, 
Well, I mean, there are exceptions. Well, we can't just bring anyone to our home like God does. And Jesus' contemporaries had similar well-reasoned, well-reasoned reservations, even those accepted by the religious community at large of his day. Normal things. And many of those reservations were corrected through the parables from this series that we're going through at Bethany. It's powerful stuff. Because the fundamental questions asked by these parables and then answered are so crucial. Who does, who does God deem worthy of his love and fellowship? Who does God deem worthy of his love and fellowship? That's the question behind the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus answers the lowest and unholiest of people in story form. The lowest and unholiest of people. Last week, we heard about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which Jesus told in response to a religious teacher's question, a high-up dude who says, who is my neighbor? Who should I love? He wanted boundaries. He wanted structure, right? And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, in story form, the one that you hate the most, the one that you judge the most, the one that you view as the most other, in his case, a Samaritan. What's your case? I, uh, you know, through the course of my life as a Christian, I became a believer at 17 and uh, went into ministry shortly thereafter. And I've been in churches all over the country, all over the world. I've worshipped and served in house churches, Southern Baptist churches, charismatic churches, conservative churches, Latino churches, churches truly embodying and enacting social justice in cities, evangelical churches, Arab churches, the list goes on. Seriously, it's just, it's, this has been my life <laughs> all, over, all over the world as a part of these various church groups. And I've noticed a consistent and what I would say is quite sinister tendency in all of them. All of them, and in myself, okay? We want to qualify who exactly it is that we love. We want and a tendency, we have a tendency to qualify who it is that we welcome, to qualify who we fellowship and feast and spend time with. Christians can obsess over this question. The gays, Muslims, homeless, the black community, transgender, fornicators, Catholics, Italians. It's a weird list, huh? <laughs> But study history, even just American history, and you'll find that the answer being yes or no to these groups I listed is a moving target, right? Some people back, just, just not even 100 years ago, yeah, about 100 years ago, people would struggle even to worship with somebody who has an Italian descent. Do you understand? Like, that was a thing. What's our thing today? It's a moving target, but always these divides are somehow deeply supported in people's minds and hearts and mouths by scripture. They have all these reasons. They well reasoned. This is why we can't associate with these people. And these walls that we build, these things that we ask, these things that we wrestle with, these hard dividing lines we entertain, we entertain them while God, Jesus says in Matthew 6, pours his blessing on the righteous and the wicked alike. Pours his blessing on the righteous and wicked alike. This we ask while Jesus looks you in the eye and says, love your enemies. This we ask while Christ himself is openly derided in scripture for associating with those looked down on by religious society at his time. At his time. 
Who do we look down on? This we ask with Pharisees and lawyers, but who really is my neighbor? They wanted boundaries. They wanted it defined. They wanted a system. It's it's grasping for a system. I want a system so that I know who exactly is in and who exactly is out. And Jesus replied to this guy, the one you hate the most, the one that you view as other the most, that's your neighbor. Who is welcome at the feast? Who does the Father celebrate when they come to him? Everyone. Everyone. And I think, you know, probably some of you hearing this right now are a little uncomfortable, right? Because maybe you're thinking, what about, what about repentance? What about righteousness? What about your lifestyle? Can just anyone really have a seat at the table? Yes, And it made Jesus' audience as uncomfortable as it makes us. We have not changed. Our aversion to those on the fringe of society, again, that moving target, however the fringe is defined, our aversion to those on the fringe of society has not changed. Having reasons to avoid extending a welcome from God himself has not changed. And Jesus brings peace in the very essence of divinity, the very essence of God himself, when he says, come, all, fringe, smelly, gross, sinful, poor, unsuccessful, failures, looked down at, judged, rejected, damaged, unstable, lost. Come. Get the people from outside the town. Forget just the beggars on the streets. Keep going. The invitation keeps going. And so now I ask you to consider the question, how do you assess, how do you judge people who walk through that door? That's actually kind of an easier question. How about a more pointed question? Who are you unwilling to share your table at home with? Who are you unwilling to share your table at home with? I can tell you, friends, that God is not unwilling. God is not unwilling to share his table with anyone. God does not draw the same lines that we do. He associates with fornicators and sinners. He's a drunkard and hangs out with drunkards. That's what people said about Jesus while he was here on this planet. That's what the established religious groups of the time and leaders of the time accused Jesus of because of who he spent time with. And every time I think about that, I I just think, would I have thought the same? It's so easy to look at stories in hindsight and be like, oh, well, I would have done the right thing. Would we have thought so well? Would I have thought so as well if Jesus was here now? Would I have missed what the nature of the kingdom of God actually is? Um, I, uh, I, went to, I did my undergraduate degree at, at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which is actually where Megan and I met a long time ago. Um, and, uh, and, and Moody was, at the time, I think they're all torn down now, it was at the time just a couple blocks away from Cabrini Green, which is the projects, you know, it's the projects in Chicago. And a good friend of mine, Zach, um, Zach Anderson, he uh, uh, met a couple of homeless guys, and we, we would go and talk to the homeless a lot and just kind of share with them, whatever, but, but he, he connected with, uh, with a pair of homeless guys, Kenny and Uncle Ben, um, and wanted me to meet them. So we met, and, and we, uh, you know, eventually, you know, long story short, built, a, built quite the relationship uh, with these guys. Kenny was this old, maybe 6'3", tall, white dude with just 
the tobacco and sun was his skin regimen. You know what I'm saying? Like he was just crackling everywhere and uh, always grimacing, always looked like this. And he'd look at you like, huh? You know? But, uh, but he was a very gentle soul and, and one of the most generous people I've ever met. And I don't say that ironically. Um, Uncle Ben was a black dude, slick shaved, had a swagger, probably in his 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And, uh, and, and you know, like I said, we, we developed a relationship with these guys and built enough trust to where I started welcoming, welcoming them into our home, or into my home, and Zach would with his as well. And, you know, it was, it was really an incredible thing to see, this, this, how transformative having these guys over and cooking them a meal. And, I, I mean, you know, I, one memory that sticks out is when I made Ben a steak, because I was like, when was the last time this guy had a steak? You know what I'm saying? So I, I went out, I got a steak, I made him a steak, we fed him, you know, all this, and then he sat in a recliner, and he, was, and he just passed out within three minutes, and he was asleep for like two hours. He got up, and he was like, that, this is like the best thing that's happened to me in such a long time, whatever. So we, we build this relationship, and the whole time we're sharing the gospel with them as well. We're sharing Jesus. We want, we want them to be a part of God's family the same way, and hospitality was a way of doing that. And, um, and, and you know, they were always sort of hands-off with it. it. It was always sort of, especially Ben, like, you know, I don't know about that. He was a nice dude, whatever, it was fine. Um, you know, for me, it was no strings attached hospitality. You know, I'm demonstrating the kingdom. I can't force you to join it or not, right? And, and, and Ben was always a little hands-off, but I'll, I'll never forget um, one time it was his birthday, and uh, he comes talking to me and Zach, and he's like, he's like, it's my birthday today, and we're like, that's awesome. And he's like, kids are in the service. And he's like, I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go find a lady of the night, right? Um, I, I, I'm going to go treat myself, in other words, is what he was saying. I'm going to go treat myself. I've been saving up money. This guy's homeless, right? He's really been looking forward to this. And me and Zach are talking to him like, hey, you know, like, remember all these Jesus stories we've been talking about? Like, that's probably not the best idea for you. That's probably not what you should be doing. Um, you know, again, in a loving, concerned way, not shaming him, not trying to, to make him feel guilty, but just saying, hey, there's, there's better options. And it was really amazing because we, we went through this whole thing, and he's like, I don't know, it's my birthday, right, guys? This comes once a year. And so he, um, and so he left, and he came back later that night, and, uh, and he was like, hey, I wanted you guys to know that, like, I decided not to go through with, uh, with my plan because it just, you know, I feel like God spoke to me and was like, this is really not the right thing to be doing. And it was amazing because it was the first time in, in, a, in a relationship that was, we'd known him for at least a year at this point. It was the first time that he was like, that he, he was making a choice of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take steps and start following Jesus now. I'm going I'm to actually live out this thing. Um, and it was significant because if you've ever been in homeless ministry or if, you, or if you've been homeless yourself, you know that like people share the gospel with you all day. Every day, believe it or not, you go to a food bank, you go to somewhere to 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 to, to get warm for a little while, you go to uh, you know any number of places that serve the homeless. And maybe it's a little different in Seattle. This was certainly the case in Chicago. You're going to get preached at before you get a meal, right? Like we'll give you a meal if you listen to our sermon. And so they they there there is really a sense of fatigue from this community, right, when it comes to the gospel. And yet something a transaction started happening when we, as we welcomed him into our home. And again, we built trust, right? This wasn't just, we just met him the day of. We built trust and then welcomed him into our home. And, uh, and that became a transformative experience that he hadn't experienced despite hearing a hundred sermons. You know what I'm saying? Just from welcoming him into, into our home. And, 
You know, and, 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 and that significance, it, it became quite weighty because just, uh, you know, just five weeks after that, Ben was uh, attacked on the street and beaten to death and left in the cold. And so, you know, I don't, I don't say that just to be a downer, but just to, to translate the reality of this, of this calling and the significance that, that and, and, and this was just something that God highlighted to me and that through this experience was like, you know, through this welcome and through, through, through caring for this man and just sharing Jesus in very non-confrontational ways, he decided to make those steps. He felt the love and he decided to make those steps and then he was dead five weeks later. And it was, uh, it was remarkable. It was remarkable. Um, so, in conclusion, you know, as we, as we kind of wind down our, our teaching time together, um, I want to acknowledge one more significant point from this story, um, and it's regarding the, uh, meh, don't need it crowd, right? I feel like I've kind of left them out. Our, our, our three last-minute cancelers in the story. And I want to address it because I think this attitude, meh, don't need it, it encapsulates a pervasive response to the message of Jesus in the world, especially in developed nations, but everywhere. And at least with regard to Christianity, I can speak at least with regard to Christianity, I think it's rooted fundamentally in how people view the church, right? And how, by extension, they view the kingdom of God itself and what it even is. And whether they would use the term kingdom of God or not, you know, that's our, that's our verbiage, that's our parlance, but, but that's what it boils down to. And how, and how does the meh, don't need it crowd view the church? What comes to mind on, on maybe a, a, a leaning neutral, you know, level, it's boring sermons, old stories, a dress code, not swearing, and a thousand unwritten rules according to which you will be judged, often silently by the community. That's how people see the church often. But further, but further, and from a much more negative point of view, prevailing opinions are that there are large-scale abuses in the church. They see the absolute ungodly politicization of Christianity, especially among Christian evangelicals today, in the U.S. anyway. They see the health and wealth gospel as transparently about money and greed when they look at the lifestyles of the leaders of this movement and where all that money goes. It goes to buying them private planes. They see a lack of social action and justice, overlooked wrongs, straight-up gaslighting people when abuses are called out, whether it's an individual one or a corporate one. They see church leaders and churches do this. And the list could go on. And so the point being, Jesus pitches the nature of the kingdom of God as a feast, right? As a feast to which everybody is welcome. And these people, the meh, don't need it crowd, pass on the feast. Why? Because they don't see a feast. They pass on the feast because they don't see a feast. They see all the things I just named and more. And I think that's what they see because, in part, that's what we've made the kingdom to be here on earth. But what God offers, what God offers in this story, is so much richer and so much more filling and joyful and celebratory and life-giving. It's love. It's community. It's welcome. It's trading fear of judgment for acceptance. It's richness. It's richness. It's that guy at the wedding giving me a hand and saying, whatever you need, just... My fear was gone. My fear was gone. And it's trading fear of judgment for acceptance. And we, as God's ambassadors, 
You're ambassadors of Christ, Paul says. And we as God's ambassadors can only do right by extending the same offer to others that God extends to us. And we extend it in God's name. And let me tell you, the richness is rarely better cultivated of the kingdom, of this invitation, of this welcome that we receive and we give than around a table, right? Around a table, in a home. The barriers that come down when you cross a threshold and somebody says, welcome to my home. I want you here. It's astounding. And when you do that, you're being your father to the world. You're embodying God to these people. You're giving them an example of this is what he's like. I'm a, I'm a, a pale in imitation. You know, I'm a... I'm a I'm a cheap imitation, but I'm, this, is, this is what he's like, right? And you're enacting God and his kingdom to the world through something as simple as your hospitality. And if you're hearing all this, and you feel like that's what you're missing too, the richness, the fullness of the gospel in God's kingdom, I so very strongly encourage you. Welcome others into your home. In Jesus' name, welcome them into your home. It's, it's the love you give. It's the love you give. Share meals. Open a bottle of wine. Just, just have family time together with each other. You know, our gatherings do not all have to be a Bible study or a prayer meeting. And I take Bible study seriously. <laughs> Seven years of my life was devoted exclusively to the academic study of Scripture. Right? I get it. It is important to understand. But our faith is more than that. That, that propels us to further action right? Our study of scripture. You can have family time and you can eat, drink, laugh, and celebrate together in Jesus' name. Paul says it explicitly. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And when you do so, Christian, you're only imitating his kingdom. You're imitating his feast, his celebration, and his welcome. You're extending it. You're being the hands and feet of Jesus, as we say. We are all we're all the prodigal. We all come home. We all come to God as beggars, every one of us. And a thousand times a day, he welcomes us with an embrace, an open door, a feast, and he loves to honor us, just as he did in the story with the prodigal son. So welcome others. This is my, this is my challenge. Welcome others as God welcomes you. Welcome others as God welcomes you. And you will find your life transformed and enriched in the same way that God's own life and personhood is rich beyond comparison. And others will find their lives enriched as well, even the, nah, don't need it crowd. As the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Our city and our church is full of people. They're full of people who are judged, unwanted, and unwelcomed. I mean, think about the discrimination and disdain that so many groups in America feel when they hear the news, when they hear how they're talked about on various news stations, when they're walking down the street and get looks from people, when they go to work. It becomes defining for people, that rejection, that unease. The BIPOC community, the gay community, trans community, Muslims, immigrants, the undocumented, fill in the blank. It's a lot of people. Consider how wary you would be, how afraid you would be, how apprehensive you would be toward a majority culture person who you're not sure if they hate you, reject you, would harm you, if this was how you were viewed by society. I felt that in the West Bank. I felt that when I was very different. I was alone. I was afraid. I was the minority, and I couldn't talk to people. It was, it's, it's scary. And the open hand of welcome extended to me was transformative. Arab, Arab hospitality in general was transformative. I could share so many stories. 
But friends, God in this passage extends an enthusiastic welcome to his table. He says, come, keep the invite going, keep going, bring everybody. Oh, you got all the lame, crippled, poor? Keep going, keep going, bring, fill my house, right? And so I invite you to extend your welcome in Jesus' name. Um, We're going to take two minutes of reflection before Suzanne comes up and leads us again. And in this time of reflection, what I would encourage you to think about for like a rubber meets the road consideration of this passage is who really, challenge yourself with this, who would I rather not welcome to my table? Who is somebody who, through conversation, through whatever, through through your day-to-day life, it is obvious that is not somebody that you even talk to, let alone associate with or share a meal with. Um, Take two minutes, invite the Holy Spirit into that space. You know, he's happy about change. I, like I said, this is not about shame. <laughs> this is not about shaming everybody or, or trying to just heap guilt, but rather we receive such a glorious invitation, extend that invitation. So I, I encourage you to consider that for two minutes and then we'll uh, worship together.